0: Those experiments showed that choline abolishes the fatty liver caused by anything. So, you know, you you cause fatty liver with alcohol, choline prevents it. You cause fatty liver with sugar, choline prevents it. You cause fatty liver with whatever the cause is, choline prevents it. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative cutting-edge
1: information from leading experts from around the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Medgenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from New York is Dr. Chris Masterjohn.
0: Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Nathan, for having me on. It's great to be here.
1: Great. Um, So, yeah, you've got a bit of a a reputation down in Australia. A lot of people are excited that I'm doing a podcast with you today, Uh, and today we wanted to dive into the um, topic of choline because it's a probably an ingredient that we're in Australia less familiar with and it's only probably in um, nutrition terms been recognized as a nutrient more recently. Um, you've been looking at this for a while, so I want to pick your brains on choline and other things around choline. But before we do that, perhaps just um, for those people who don't know, you, if you can give us a bit of a, a background on um, who you are and where you're at the moment.
0: Yeah, uh, I have a PhD in nutritional sciences. I went the traditional uh, academic route for quite a while. I did a postdoc at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I worked on some research on the interaction between fat-soluble vitamins. Um, I originally did my doctoral work at the University of Connecticut at Storrs, where I did it on uh, the role of glutathione and dietary antioxidants and regulating the the accumulation of methylglyoxal, which is uh, the, perc- the most important precursor to advanced glycation end products and plays a major role in the pathogenesis of diabetes and its complications. And then after my postdoc, I was assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College in Brooklyn, New York, for about two and a half years, uh, where I continued the research from my postdoc and did a lot of teaching and uh, in the turning of 2017 I left academia completely to work on my own in educating people about nutrition um and a mix of consulting and producing educational content and that's what I'm doing now
1: great yeah and
0: um and we'll mention your your
1: website later on but it's full of free content you've got um, podcasts you're really generous with your time and information um and sounds like you're super busy so let's dive into choline um so as I mentioned, it's a relatively newly acknowledged um, nutrient. So perhaps just give us a bit of a background on how it was actually recognized more recently as an essential nutrient.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. So, I mean, when we say more recently, we're really talking about um, 20 years ago or so. Um, but it's kind of funny because the, ro- the it was... The way we discovered that choline was an essential nutrient in humans was the way we discovered quite a number of things, which is when we invent a a synthetic diet, we always mess it up. (laughs) So in the case of total parenteral nutrition uh, or TPN, this is nutrition that's completely intravenous given to people who have something obstructing their ability to eat any food. And in this case... 100% 100% of the diet is delivered intravenously. And if that's short term, it's probably not going to cause any problems. But if someone's on it for months, it's going to quickly reveal whatever the flaws in developing the TPN are. And in fact, this was also how we discovered the essentiality of omega-3 fatty acids several decades before this. Um, but around 2000, give or take, the year 2000, give or, give or take, a, um, leading up to it a couple of years, we we cracked this mystery where people always developed fatty liver on TPN. And someone had the bright idea to say, well, we've known for about 100 years that choline prevents fatty liver in animals. So maybe it does in humans too. And they added choline to the TPN and boom, the fatty liver went away. <laughs> and so, it's, I mean, this is sort of like, to me, it strikes me less as a an amazing revelation and more of a duh moment because the role of fat, the role of choline in fatty liver was first discovered in, and I actually wrote about this where I had all the details and I haven't looked at that writing in a while, but it was before the 20th century. I think, I think it was actually in the late, I might have this wrong, the late 1700s, I'm thinking um, that it was recognized that, diabetics had fatty liver and over well over a century ago it was found that in dogs that were given type 1 diabetes that um, that choline could completely resolve it and then in uh, the 19 the early part of the 20th century it was shown in rats that choline prevented fatty liver disease and in fact you know the The story of developing diets for rats is so similar to the story of developing TPN for humans. So one of the things with rat research was that back in the old days, the rats were fed chow diets, which was basically like a bunch of cereal grains put together. And they were real inconsistent in the nutritional profile because they weren't standardized. And they were made from whole foods. And you can never exactly standardize the nutrient profile of whole foods because the variety, the growing conditions, the soil, all kinds of things will affect the nutrient profile. So, people wanted to be able to make easy comparisons across cancer and toxicological studies in animals and to be able to say, you know, it, like you really shouldn't make a comparison that wasn't done as a head to head comparison inside a single study. But they wanted to be able to say, well, this author did this, such and such, and we can compare it to this study over here. Or they used a different dose or they did this thing etc and to be able to have a have a standard background diet they said okay let's make the, the diets from scratch by putting in everything that we know to be essential to rats and mice uh, as a standalone nutrient so in, instead of putting foods into it and assuming that you get the nutrients you'd put uh, you know dextrose you'd put right. uh, casein you'd for the protein. You'd put whatever fatty acids you wanted into it. You'd, you'd build the mineral mix from scratch. You'd build a vitamin mix from scratch. And that way, you know, everyone's getting the same thing. First, so one of the first things that happened was the animals started becoming very unhealthy um, because we had to basically spend decades by trial and error figuring out what they needed and one of the ways in which they became health unhealthy was that they all developed fatty liver mm-hmm. and part of the reason was that they were feeding them uh, they were putting sugar into they were putting sucrose into the diet to provide the carbohydrate instead of starch which is what the chow diets were made of and the fructose component of sucrose promotes fatty liver um, there was that but also they weren't putting an, they weren't putting choline in it or they weren't putting enough choline so they put choline and it still wasn't enough They raised choline, they reduced the sugar, and then the fatty liver was gone. So it was just found over and over again in every context that choline prevented fatty liver disease. In fact, in trying to figure out why the animals were getting fatty liver on these diets, they also did, you know, side experiments just to look at the role of sugar and the role of fat and the role of various other things in fatty liver disease. Um, And those experiments showed that choline... Abolishes the fatty liver caused by anything. So you know you co- you cause fatty liver with alcohol. Choline prevents it. You cause fatty liver with sugar. Choline prevents it. You cause fatty liver with whatever the cause is. Choline prevents it. And so it was eventually discovered that this is because choline is necessary to produce phosphatidylcholine, which is an important component of the VLDL particle membrane. Which is the means by which you export triglycerides from the liver. And phosphatidylcholine happens to be the limiting factor under most contexts for triglyceride export from the liver. And and that's why, right? So mm. fatty liver is a is a fat in versus fat out equation, and choline is the key determinant of the fat out equation. So sugar is fat in, fat is fat in, alcohol is fat in, all these obesity is largely fat in all these other risk factors for fatty liver are mainly affecting the fat in part of the equation, but fat in can be very, very high and it doesn't matter if the fat out equation part of the equation is higher, you know, 10 fat in 10 fat out is zero fat accumulation, a hundred fat in a hundred fat out is zero fat accumulation. So it's, it's sort of like to me, it was a major duh moment when they found that adding choline to TPN abolished the fatty liver that was caused in humans by giving them TPN with no choline because we discovered this in numerous other animals decades before that over the past century. And the mechanism is so simple that humans and every other animal require phosphatidylcholine to export triglycerides from their liver. Therefore, in all animals, choline is the key determinant of the ability to export fat from the liver. Period. It boom. It also applies in humans. We more recently discovered, which should have been should have been predicted based on everything we knew from animals.
1: Yeah. So with the um, epidemic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in the U.S. and you know in Australia, rates of obesity are, are pretty much on par with um, you guys over there. So, it, um, yeah, you know, I suppose free-living individuals, the, the, the equation of the fat in, fat out, is, is there research on like, uh, by and large, people with NAFLD, you know, eating too much fat, alcohol or, or not alcohol, if it's NAFLD, um, sugar, or is it a combination of they're not getting enough choline in as well? Is there much data yet on, is it free-living
0: humans? So... Bizarrely, no one really has studied the ability of choline to prevent or reverse fatty liver disease caused by other aspects of the fat in equation in humans. So what we know in animals is that choline deficiency causes fatty liver disease and that adding extra choline or adding anything that is a limiting factor for endogenous synthesis of choline, such as sulfur amino acids, will abolish the fatty liver caused by anything else. And then what we know in humans is that choline deficiency causes fatty liver in humans. And since the TPN studies were done, we also now know that if you take free living humans and you put them on a choline, on a low choline diet, they also will develop fatty liver. So we know in both inpatients and free-living humans that choline deficiency causes fatty liver disease, just like it's caused in animals. And we know that the mechanism is the same. Um, So everything about all of that would indicate that choline would also abolish the fatty liver disease caused by fructose or fat or obesity, et cetera. But no one has done that research in humans.
1: Wow. Uh, Well, hopefully in the near future. So, um, so let's look at colon. Where does it come from in the diet? What's the sort of uh, major sources? And on average, what are um, people say, if you know, in the US, what are they um, getting on average per day?
0: So if you look at, um, you know, if you want to, if you want to take a very uh, simple view of this, then I I think liver and egg yolks are really the best sources of choline. Um, But you could take a uh, sort of more comprehensive view. And uh, I would say like, if we start to peel back the layers, uh, there's a lot of choline in meats. There's a lot of choline in nuts, or there's a a moderate amount of choline in nuts and in cruciferous vegetables, and then it tends to kind of drop off after there. This is somewhat complicated by the fact that a major thing you do with choline is you oxidize it to a chemical called betaine, to or also known as trimethylglycine or TMG, to support methylation. And there's also betaine in foods, and so um, I think it's. I wouldn't attempt to get most or all of your choline requirement from beta but you can certainly substitute a good amount, and I'm guessing, say, maybe get up to half of your choline requirement fulfilled as betaine and that broadens the scope of foods that you can use. Um, I, I made a, I actually made a, a choline, a searchable choline database, uh, and that's, if, if you just Google, we can put in the show notes, but also yeah. if you just Google Master John Choline database, it'll come up. And so the way that I think of this is um, the average person should uh, try to get the equivalent of four egg yolks and the major ways that you could get one egg yolks worth of choline would be to eat one egg yolk, obviously, <laughs> or to eat... 40 to 70 grams of various types of liver, depending on the animal that they come from. Among meat and fish and shellfish, salmon uh, is particularly good. And a little under 150 grams of salmon will provide the equivalent of one egg yolk. And then somewhere between 135 and 285 grams of most meat, fish, or shellfish do. And then uh, as you go down the list, you get to larger and larger amounts of like 172 grams of flax seeds, 185 grams of pistachios, quinoa, amaranth, or pinto beans, 215 grams of pumpkin squash, pumpkin pumpkin seeds, squash seeds, or cashews, 250 grams of pine nuts, edamame, which is raw soybeans, buckwheat, sunflower seeds, peanuts, or almonds. And then as you go down the list, it just becomes higher and higher volumes and becomes more and more impractical to mix and match those. Um, But it does give you, it gives you some options, right? Because, it, you know, if you're, if you're on a vegetarian or a vegan diet, you, you can focus on high volumes of some of those plant foods at the end of the list. If you are if you eat, um, you know, meat, fish, and shellfish, uh, several servings of those are fulfilling a substantial part of your choline requirement. And so, like, the simplest way to do it is eat four eggs. But, you know, if you eat enough of those other foods, you don't need any eggs. Um, and then betaine is is uh, found particularly high in quinoa, wheat germ, wheat bran, uh, canned beets, um, Can canned, canned beets because they're canned, the volume shrinks. Right. So you need to eat more raw beets, not because canning produces choline, but because it shrinks down the beet volume. Jesus. And uh, spinach is also pretty good. And because wheat germ and wheat bran are good, whole wheat flour is also good. Um, and then, uh, be- and betaine is just less well distributed in foods. So um the yeah, the the average person so the interestingly the choline the adequate intake for choline, which is in the U in I- in the United States, is what is set uh in place of an RDA when we don't have really good evidence for how much you need, is actually set at what the average people are eating. Right. And so it's it's set at five hundred and fifty milligrams per day um for the average adult male, and a little bit less than that for women. Um, but that's just based on what the average people are eating. So, like 50% are eating more than that, and 15, 50% are eating under that. What I think is interesting is that there is some evidence that people with the MTHFR polymorphism, which is, uh, which is an enzyme involved in folate metabolism, which is related to the ability of choline to support the methylation process. In the C677T homozygous variant of MTHFR, which is, which is a 75% reduction in enzymatic activity, which is about 10 or 15% of the population, uh, there are two studies that suggest that the choline requirement in that population is 900 to 1,200 milligrams per day, which is almost mm-hmm. double wow. what the AI is. Um, so, you know, the, the, the amount that some people might need is actually way higher than the AI. Um, and there was uh, a, a few years ago, and I don't know where to find this anymore. There were, there were, I think it was in hearings of, I believe it was an FDA meeting, or it might have been USDA, I can't remember, uh, but there were recordings of the meetings that were put out on the internet and there was some discussion where they called the choline problem, the problem that all the official recommendations are basically telling people to eat less cholesterol.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and yet, you know, the research is indicating that you might need even more than the recommended amount of choline. And it's like, where are you going to get it from? <laughs> um, so, wow. yep yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so many questions. Uh,
1: um, I just want to mention, so I've only got data on Australian pregnant and um, breastfeeding women, but on average they're getting around about 250 milligrams a day, so a fair bit lower than maybe the, the RDI and um, and we'll hopefully get to it in a moment, um, maybe well below what they need in pregnancy. Um, so another way of maybe looking at this is uh, are there any ways of um, – measuring someone's um choline status um now you've got a great um cheat sheet on testing and I, I will point out i think it's a bit of a misnomer it's not a sheet it's a um war and peace it's about 90 90 pages it's brilliant i haven't <laughs> I haven't managed to tease out the choline part yet but um so can we measure like choline status or do we have to use like a proxy of like homocysteine with its um role in methylation
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, there's not really any well-validated markers of choline status. I mean, there are labs that offer, you know, plasma choline and things like that, but um, there there aren't any well-validated, nothing that's available is well-validated as a marker of choline status. So I think that the best thing to do is to logic through the situation using better validated markers. So, for example, we know that homocysteine is a highly nonspecific functional marker of methylation. And we know that—and I should back up just to explain briefly one thing. So, methylation is—the methyl groups are either going to come through a pathway dependent on folate and Mm B12— Uh, or a pathway dependent on oxidizing choline to betaine and using that. And in the average healthy person on a mixed diet, you're using about half and half of those two pathways. The reason MTHFR raises the choline requirement, which I didn't make clear before, is because lower MTHFR activity lowers your ability to use the folate B12 pathway. And so it makes you more dependent on the alternative, which is choline. So if... Homocysteine is elevated in the fasting state that generally reflects poor remethylation of homocysteine to methionine. If homocysteine is elevated postprandially, that generally reflects poor uh, cysteine uh, poor conversion of homocysteine to cysteine, which requires vitamin B six. Right. And so, if your fasting homocysteine is elevated, then that basically means that the sum of the activity of those two ways of remethylating homocysteine, one dependent on folate and B12, the other dependent on choline and betaine, that the sum of that activity is poor. And so to some degree, you can support these, to some degree, like it's a little redundant in the sense that if you get more choline, you'll be less dependent on folate and B12 to a certain extent. Um, You can't be 100% dependent on choline because there's some tissues that don't, use that pathway very effectively. Um, but, you know, if you get more folate and more B12, to some extent, you're going to be less dependent on choline. You can't be fully dependent on folate and B12, especially because choline does other things, like it makes acetylcholine um, and you can't make acetylcholine out of folate or B12. Um, so, these aren't uh, completely redundant, but they are, they are to a certain extent redundant, such that if fasting homocysteine is elevated, you really can't tell whether you should get more choline or more folate in B12, but you can tinker with both of them and see what works. Um, and then symptomatically, I think if just whole body choline levels are low, then for a lot of people, um, I think for like, for example, if if low choline is affecting your nervous system, then I think either a perceived deficit of rest and digest parasympathetic activity might be reflected in that, Mm -hmm. and a perceived or, you know, validated with cognitive function test, a perceived uh, lack of acetylcholine in the central nervous system is going to lead to a lack of sustained focused attention in terms of cognitive performance. And could also be associated with age-related dementia, particularly associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so, symptomatically, I think you can look at choline that way. And then also, fatty liver is um, it is going to be impacted by folate and B twelve because they play an endogenous role in the synthesis of choline in the form of converting phosphate uh phosphatidylethanolamine to phosphatidylcholine which represents the de novo the main de novo pathway for synthesizing choline um, but it fatty liver really is a deficiency of phosphatidylcholine and so f- i think in particular uh, fatty liver could be regarded as a lack of choline in the liver so i think you kind of have to be a detective about it and yeah. look at symptoms, look at, you know, objective measurements of liver fat, look at homocysteine, see what seems to be the most logical lever to pull. And one of the, and, you know, a major le- lever to pull in all of those is choline.
1: Wow. So
0: um,
1: could you infer through the other alternative, like say potentially getting adequate choline? I like how you're talking about like, look for the potential signs and symptoms. What would be the folate b12 sort of deficiency if we've got the choline like the the nervous system and the acetyl the cognitive function do you have like a yeah well i
0: I mean the thing is like there's just such better well-validated markers for folate and b12 that i don't think you need to be as symptomatic about it true um i mean uh, the thing is the last thing on earth you want is to be detecting someone's B12 deficiency symptomatically mm. because that means it's too late because B12 deficiency can cause irreversible nervous system degeneration. So you really want to be proactive. Like your hope is that you're proactive enough about B12 status that you never have to see any symptoms of its deficiency. Yeah. Um, so like if homocysteine is high, you should be measuring B12 status stat. Yeah. If if um if someone has gastritis, you should be measuring B twelve status stat. Someone's over the age of sixty five, you should be regularly testing B twelve status. Um, you should probably measure B someone's B twelve status at least once in their life, and do it immediately in the next appointment if they're it's not in their medical records, um because. You know, a small percentage of people can develop B12 deficiency in um, earlier, like at the, when someone's in people over the age of 65, it's like a 15% chance that they're B12 deficient because of subclinical this, because of, you know, 13 and a half percent because of subclinical gastritis and one and a half percent or so because of pernicious anemia. And those numbers are like 10 times lower for someone who's 30, but they're still there. And so you don't want to let that fall under the radar. So, like in in routine medical practice, probably the first thing that you would see is the is the on a on a CBC the mean corpuscular volume might start creeping up. Um, you know, if you see that going, I don't know what units use in Australia. In America, the numbers would be like the reference range might be cut off at like 94 to 100 somewhere. Yep. And so it's like if you see someone's 85, then they're 90, then next time they're 92, next time they're 94, next time they're 96, next time they're 98, next time they're 102. You don't want to wait until the until whether you can actually have diagnosable anemia. You want to look at that and see like, wow, the MCV has been going up. I should look at folate and B12 status. And so for folate, uh, serum folate and red blood cell folate are the best to measure. The serum folate mainly reflects methylated folate, and the RBC folate mainly reflects the total folate pool. So I like the idea of measuring both together. Um, if you do organic acids testing, you can also look at form amino glutamate, often abbreviated FIGLU. Um, but you know it's e- generally easier and cheaper to order a serum and red blood cell folate. For B12, I think you should order serum B12, but it's um, but there's always a chance that someone's serum B12 might actually be on the high side because it's not getting into the cells. That's not the most common problem, but it exists. And so um, methylmalonic acid or MMA mm-hmm. is yeah. the best highly specific functional marker of B12 deficiency. And uh, I would recommend measuring that in blood and urine because generally it's MMA is actually toxic. And so you, by default, they're trying to pee it out. Um, and then if you have something wrong with your kidneys, it's probably going to rise or like if you have, if you have low kidney function, then it could rise in the blood more sensitively than the urine. But if your kidneys are healthy, it's generally the urine's going to be more sensitive than the blood. And so I just feel like if you really suspect something, just measure both. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think that's. I think that kind of sums yeah. it. I, yeah. And I, maybe in Australia you have something else. Like um, I, I do know that like holo transcobalamin two is a is a good marker of B twelve deficiency. But no one in America, in the U S, no one's offering yeah. that commercially. Yeah. So
1: that's great. Um, yeah, some really useful tips there. And so yeah, I think we've got enough um, validated biomarkers for um, folate and B twelve. But choline sort of almost is like a. "Quote unquote diagnosis of exclu- uh, diagnosis of a biomarker exclusion, so you can run your your folate and B twelve markers, um, and if perhaps they're adequate yet, and and plus maybe the symptoms of a, a choline deficiency, then you, it's probably likely that it's going to be choline, and um, I probably can't see much." Um, so I,
0: I would I would add one point yeah, here, sure. which is the most dangerous deficiency out of all of these is b12 because yeah. it causes irreversible nervous system degeneration the the most common actual clinical deficiency is b12 and i don't mean people need more of it like cho- like lots of people need more choline hmm. but i mean se- i mean severe clinical level deficiency is b12 because its digestion is so sensitive to, to factors that can be that can impair it. And like I said before, 15% of people over the age of 65 become spontaneously B12 deficient. And and yet B12 is also the easiest to not see because getting enough choline can mask the homocysteine and getting enough folate can mask yeah. the MCV. And so and so the last thing you ever want to do is be sloppy about measuring B12 status. Like out of everything we talked about, I really strongly back being as proactive as possible about B12 status measurement, because there's I mean, people will debate like, in how many people is the serum cobalt is the serum B12 not low? And the MMA is elevated. And my response is who cares because the downside is irreversible nervous system degeneration, which is how do you compare that to like a, I, I'm sorry, I don't know what these costs in Australia, but how do yeah, you, yeah. Co- how do you compare that to like a hundred dollars to drop on a blood test? You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah, like, I, I think, I think given the, the, um, frequency with which people can become clinically deficient and the ability of all those other markers to be masked, I think we should be very proactive about measuring B12 status.
1: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. All right, um, we might circle back to choline for a moment now. So we've, we've covered off it in um, fatty liver. I want to focus in on pregnancy because it's still, I suppose, in its pardon the pun, infancy, Um but the, the, <laughs> <laughs> the research on choline in um, pregnancy—have uh, um, you looked much into that? And um, because there is increased need for the the choline um, during. So,
0: so I, I haven't looked into it recently, and it's it's possible that there's maybe you're aware of some interesting human research that I haven't seen yet. But um, back the last time I looked into this, uh, there was some pretty compelling research in animals. That if you feed pregnant rats three times their requirement for choline, the pups of those rats will have lifelong improvement in cognitive function, including a thirty percent reduction in thirty um, percent improvement in visuospatial memory, a reduction in interference memory problems, which is. The kind of memory problem where you forgot where you parked your car because you parked at that grocery store 300 times in the last five years and uh, in a different spot each time. And so the last 299 times you parked your car there are all those memories are competing for where you parked your car this time. Um, And then I think most amazingly, uh, complete abolition of age-related senility. (laughs) And so you know the 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 prospect of potentially, you know, to like it, choline is not very harmful, and uh, or, or at, I mean at choline at trip like triple the um, basic need is um, I I don't I, I think, and we can talk about TMAO a little yeah. bit. I that's yeah. in your notes that you want to talk about, but there's not a very strong case for saying. That that's harmful, and the up the potential upside for the benefit of cognitive function is pretty amazing. Um, as a reference point, this would be um, basically uh, in utero through the first four years of a baby's life, um, because in humans the cholinergic neuron uh, st- structural development continues through those four years, whereas in most animal species, it's done by the time of birth. And so you mentioned some research earlier that the choline intake of lactating women is very low. So that's particularly concerning because lactating women are the ones who should be focusing both on consuming high choline for the sake of their breast milk and also focusing on introducing primarily choline-rich foods as the first foods for their infants.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit alarming. Um, so yeah, the, the brief um, human data we've stumbled across pretty much echoes um, the animal data, but probably not as um, strong, which is often the case. But uh, there was a study where they gave women, pregnant women the, from the second trimester in, into breastfeeding 930 milligrams a day of choline compared to... A, the other group which is 480 milligrams which is still almost double what the australian women are getting and at the age i think of four and seven there was significant um higher visuospatial memory and non-verbal intelligence scores in the um the children whose mums got the higher level of choline
0: yeah that's amazing and so uh, in about 60 years we should be <laughs> if we can follow up this cohort we can see if the uh age-related senility findings translate to humans.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, have you looked at – Yeah, has it been research? I've only looked at this briefly. My sort of take on Colin seems for like cognition, it sort of seems to be good for the bookends of life in, in like um, early life and um, in the elderly, but it doesn't seem to appear to improve cognition in um, middle-aged folk. Have you – investigate any of that
0: i i haven't really what what specific findings think, are you uh, i think that
1: they've, they've done um perform like choline supplementation like middle-aged yeah. um, people and what, it had what, no, po- what form
0: were they using
1: yeah I, I haven't i can't recall it was just what something looked you know, yeah so in
0: in al- i mean i would think that cognitive function would be mainly improved by acetylcholine and yeah, right. the and so alpha gpc alpha-glycerophosphocholine is the form that most effectively generates acetylcholine. So I, I don't know. Um, I, I'm not familiar with the research that you're referring to, so I yeah. wonder if they use that form or not. I'll have to, I'll have to look it up.
1: All right. Um, so you, you mentioned it. Let's dive into this uh, TMAO because it's um, a little controversial. Um, all right. So I'll, I'll let you describe what it is in... Um, how it's putatively linked to cardiovascular disease, and we'll look at you know what your your views are on it.
0: Yeah. So okay. So there was. Um, uh, it's been a while now. It's it's <laughs> probably been about a decade since this first came out. Um, there's a there's a group that's been arguing that uh, trimethylamine oxide or TMAO. Contributes to cardiovascular disease. They did research in ApoE deficient mice, which spontaneously developed cardiovascular disease anyway, um, and TMAO basically aggravated, you know, all the markers that they were looking at at, car- at cardiovascular disease development, and that was true whether they in whether they treated them with TMAO di- directly or whether they generated the TMAO by feeding them precursors to it. And they've been arguing that um, carnitine from meat and choline from eggs can be converted by gut bacteria to trimethylamine and then converted in the liver of the host species into trimethylamine oxide or TMAO. And and then contribute to cardiovascular disease. And then they further argue that a high animal product, low plant diet favors a microbiome that generates more TMAO. And so, so basically there's a long-term effect of eating animal products that shifts the microbiome to make more TM or more TMA, which then becomes TMAO in the liver. Um, And then on top of that, when you eat the animal products acutely, you're generating that TMA, which becomes TMAO and contributes to cardiovascular disease. Um, there's a there's a there's a sort of big elephant in the room with this, which is that TMAO plays a major role as an osmolite in fish, and so fish have very high levels of this. And trimethylamine, um, the the precursor that, you know, in terms of the carnitine choline becomes TMA, becomes TMAO. Um, Fish also have TMA and TMA is responsible for the fishy smell. And um, they had studied back a while ago, many foods and shown that fish produce way more TMA and TMAO. I mean, orders of, numerous orders of magnitude higher TMA and TMAO exposure in humans than any land animal products do. And so it's, it's like there, I mean, granted, we don't really have like good long-term randomized controlled trials of fish consumption really, but we, we have, we kind of have some um, we, I mean, we have a couple where there was recommendations to eat more fish, and then we have a lot of observational data. Yeah. And on the whole, um, in the little bit of human trial evidence and the fairly larger amount of observational evidence, um, eating fish seems to be good for cardiovascular disease, if anything. And if... If TMAO is a major driver of heart disease, when humans get a tiny bit from eating meat or eggs, then what is in fish that could counteract Mm. the hundred to thousand times more TMA and TMAO exposure you get from fish that would make them not make you a hundred times more vulnerable to heart disease? And yeah, you can say, well, maybe it's the selenium, maybe it's the omega-3 fatty acids. The problem is, you know, what what case can you make that omega-3, like what quantitative effect can omega-3 fatty acids from fish have on heart disease? Like you could make a case they reduce heart disease risk 30% or something like that, but you can't make a case that they lower it a hundredfold or a thousandfold. So like, what is it in fish that is so massively protective to compensate for that TMA and TMAO? And- no one who's demonizing meat and eggs for their TMAO generation has ever tackled that question. And until that question is seriously dealt with, I just can't take the TMAO argument very seriously. But look, there has been, re- been some research followed up. And so the best case you can make from humans um, is when they feed humans choline by tartrate. They have shown that it generates TMAO and that this is associated with an increase in the in vitro blood clotting uh, clotting of their blood. So they, they take their blood out, then they expose it in an assay to a pro-clotting agent, and the more TMAO in their blood from taking the choline bitartrate leads to greater clotting activity in vitro. Um, there's also been a study showing that eating eggs does raise TMAO, but some people seem to be hyper responders and some people right. seem to be very weak responders. And that that's consistent with what uh, the Cleveland Clinic and other TMAO hypothesis proponents have been saying about the microbiome. Um, but even in the worst case scenario, four eggs is not Generating even a third as much TMAO as is generated by the equivalent amount of choline as choline bitartrate. So, I like to me, it's like phosphatidylcholine, the major form of choline in food, is more easily absorbed without reaching the colon, and so it generates less TMAO. And so, it's like before they did that human study, my concern about the TMAO hypothesis was probably a 1 out of 10, and now it's a 3 out of 10, Okay, with a high probability that further research could make it go up or down. And I have yeah. no, no idea which way it would go. Yeah, But I think eating four eggs is, for most people, not going to do anything harmful. Um, and I think choline supplements that reflect food forms are not going to have that risk. Um, and then it's sort of like with choline salts, you know, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a concern, but, um, but so for me, I stick to food and, and
1: foster. Sure, sure. Yeah. I'm also curious. Um, there's a lot of areas we can go into there, but the, the idea of um, reverse causation, the fact that they're, they've got poor circulation, I think poor kidney function, which means they, you know, accumulate more TMAO. So maybe it's a, Maybe it's the, the presence is the effect of the, the um, atherosclerosis rather than the cause. But, yeah, there's a lot of areas we can look into. Um, but that's – yeah, and obviously um, I think the other thing to keep in mind is like I don't think we should discard our better um, validated biomarkers for cardiovascular disease just in, in favor of this one. So, you know, the cholesterols and LDLs and lipoproteins, etc. cetera. Um, don't throw all those out just for this new because of the, uh, this new test. Um, I don't know. What's your thoughts there on how would it fit into a battery of a test for looking at cardiovascular disease?
0: Oh, I think it's kind of premature to start measuring TMAO. I mean, it's not it's not a validated marker of heart disease events in humans.
1: Yeah,
0: it's just not. (laughs) So, um, I mean... I don't see any harm in measuring it if you're not going to over-interpret it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's not, it's just not, it's not validated as a marker of anything in humans.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I'd be staggered if, um, a patient didn't have, yeah, the elevated LDL and everything else. Um, like every state, TMA alone was elevated, and they didn't have any other biomarkers, so
0: I mean, look, I think there's a lot of people out there who want to be real proactive about optimizing things, and so if you're looking at this from like a, a risk perspective, um, you know, if if you want to be really proactive, then you could use t- you could use plasma TMAO as a marker of whether you generate TMAO from your food. And so, you know, you might want to, if you generate a lot of TMAO and you're real into optimizing things, you might want to hedge your bets on following the microbiome research and sh- and try to shift your microbiome to, towards less TMAO production. Mm. Or you might not want to eat four eggs at a time. Maybe if you want to eat four eggs, you eat two in the morning and two sure. at night makes sense
1: all right now I might one last area I might circle back to um, because you've discussed this a bit through your education is on um, folate and MTHFR so uh, one of the things you pointed out um, earlier which I Took note of was the the comparison of the no, correct me if I got this around the wrong way. The serum folate looks at total um, levels of folate in the system, whereas the red blood cells look at the looks at the methyl levels. The the so, other way around. Okay. The
0: serum the serum folate reflects methyl folate. The red blood cell folate reflects total folate. Okay,
1: so um, MTHFR, it's yeah, it's something that's um, you know a lot of interest in Australia and uh, I think in the US. Um, so could you, irrespective of the genotype, could you just look at, um, the serum folate levels and if, and if serum folate is, um, elevated or, you know, adequate, then you can assume that you're converting through, uh, the folic acid through the 5-MTHF?
0: Um, does that make sense? Yeah. (laughs) yeah you yeah you can you can but you have to be careful with um with adequate so i actually think that a like a robust serum folate level is approximately 6 times the lower limit that's used in the us
1: right all right um so that leads into intakes then um what's your view on what an adequate intake would be
0: uh, I think it's real complicated to yeah. address this because of the interactions with other nutrients, especially choline. Yeah. Um. So I think it's it's good point. pretty it's pretty clear that choline has some capacity to spare the folate requirement, and it's probably the case that consumption of creatine from meat spares the folate requirement to some degree too although that's less well validated um, but I'm happy with with going with the with um, with the RDA and I think yep. you know the average average person who's not looking towards pregnancy 400 micrograms a day is good um, and then pregnancy I think it's 600
1: cool so with the um, creation story then it's fascinating so we we use um... Methyl donors through the SAME to um, synthesize creatine, but I suppose if you get adequate levels of creatine, either through um, diet or even supplementation, that sort of like frees up a lot of methyl groups. Is that how you, how it would you know improve methylation status? You're putting less of
0: a burden? yeah, for, yeah, forty yeah, five percent of methylation is used for synthesis of creatine. Wow. So if you, you know, in theory, so like, well, we know from studies in athletes that what happens if you take three to five grams of creatine a day is you spend four weeks increasing the muscle content of creatine about 30%. Um, and so you're not, but like in theory, if you let that play out, then you have the capacity to almost cut your methyl demand in half.
1: Wow. So if we're um, getting um, creatine perhaps from meats, we're getting choline. Um, and there's also a vitamin B2 story with the MTHFR, which uh, seems to improve MTHFR status if they've got the, the 6, 7TT genotype.
0: Yeah. So it appears that at least the C677T and maybe the A1298C, I think it's less clear with that one that the low activity is because of poor riboflavin binding and you can correct that with improved riboflavin status
1: wow that's pretty profound so um, because there has been a fair bit of interest in this MTHFR um, activity or lack of and um, some discussion that people should take more or if they've got MTHFR polymorphism they need especially the the methylfolate rather than uh, folic acid through supplementation Um, but I suppose my takeaway, it's, a, it's a probably a, a bigger picture and it's the B2 and it's um, if you're getting enough choline and perhaps if you're sparing your methylation reactions, it's the sort of net um, result of everything rather than just, you know, the single genotype needing a specific um, folic acid supplement. What's your thoughts on I, that?
0: I, th- I think it's very naive and misguided to believe that you can compensate for low MTHFR activity with methylfolate. Okay. So a, a folate molecule enters your body and it's going to enter a cell somewhere, it's probably going to stay in that cell for 200 days on average. And it's going to have methyl groups added to it and removed from it about 18,000 times a day. So the idea that, you know, if if you have a 75% decrease in MTHFR activity, you basically, you're missing, uh, you know, 13 and a half thousand of those methyl group recyclings every day yeah no so i don't know anyone who's taking 13 and times the rda for folate as methyl folate to try to compensate for mthfr yeah i don't know i don't know a single person taking that much folate mm. so the idea that you can double the folate to make to make up for something that's you know you're missing 13 and recyclings of is just it doesn't make any sense math doesn't add up at all <laughs> um and so look, I mean, the thing that we know, so first of all, we have pretty good data that improving riboflavin status by adding uh, basically, basically getting three milligrams of riboflavin a day instead of 1.3 or 1.5, um, that that can at least mitigate and possibly abolish the decrease in MTHFR activity. We, we just don't know whether it just mitigates it or whether it abolishes it, but it definitely helps. Um, and then, you know, if you assume the 75% decrease in MTHFR activity, the thing we know best about what that does to nutritional requirements is not that it impacts folate requirements, that, that it's that it impacts choline requirements. All right. Low MTHFR activity doubles your choline requirement. And that's because you're not as good at using the Foley pathway. So you have to use the alternative pathway, which is... Um, which is choline oxidized to betaine, aka trimethylglycine or TMG. Um, now, I have layered onto that several additional strategies within my protocol based on what I know about how the system works, particularly taking out into account math. I think a lot of people think about this pathway without taking into account the kinetic analyses that have been done, meaning... mathematical modeling of how much of one thing happens versus another thing right so like i have less methylfolate um production i'll take more methylfolate makes sense when you don't look at the math but doesn't make it doesn't make that much sense when you think about you know you added one methyl group on that folate and the methylfolate molecule that you ate then it got removed and now that that one folate spared you one out of 13,500 methyl groups you were missing. And now you have 13,499 to make up. Yeah. Right? So so look, the thing is, um, we, so in my view, what we're doing is we're trying to optimize what we can out of the MTHFR activity with the riboflavin. Then we add choline as the alternative methyl donor. And then the question is, You know, can choline completely make up for the folate issue? It can't for two reasons. One is that methylfolate, I should back up a second. So the endogenous buffer of methyl groups in the body is glycine. And the way it should work is that you only methylate glycine when you have too many methyl groups, too much SAMe. When you have not enough SAMe, you don't methylate glycine at all. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately for people with low methylfolate production, Methyl folate itself is the off switch for the glycine buffer system. So you should not methylate glycine when you don't have enough methyl groups. But if you don't have methyl folate, you don't have the off switch for the glycine buffer system. So you will methylate glycine even when you don't have enough methyl groups. That causes you to lose methyl groups and it also causes you to lose glycine. Glycine has its own benefits. It's, mm-hmm. pro, it's good for healthy sleep. It's good for stabilizing blood sugar. It's good for cough. Um, uh, collagen synthesis, uh, you know, connective tissue health, etc. Um, so you don't want to lose glycine, and you don't want to lose methyl groups when you don't have enough when you don't have enough methyl groups, right? So you do want to keep methylfolate there as the off switch for the glycine buffer system. The other thing is um, when you don't methylate folate, methylfolate is actually more stable than all the other folate forms, and so. When you don't don't methylate folate, you do have an increased need for folate because the non-methylated forms of folate do degrade faster. So you do have a higher turnover of folate in that sense. So it is important to get enough folate. Um, In my view, I would say supplement with 400 to 800 micrograms of methylfolate a day, but spread it out as much as possible because you put it in that system, it's not going to stay methylfolate for long. Yeah, Um, you know what I mean? So yeah, don't yeah, yeah. take 800 micrograms of folate at breakfast, spread it out as much as you can, and then try to conserve it as much as you can. How do you do that? Three to five grams of creatine a day will cut the methyl demand almost in half. Um, so I think those are the, you know, and there's, you know, you could go on like <laughs> there's many other supportive nutrients. You got to have enough protein, other B vitamins, et cetera, et cetera. But those are the key. Those are the real key central things. And what I see is the, the, um, the protocol for dealing with low MTHFR activity. And then the kind of the icing on the cake is um, you know, you don't know how well the protocol is working to conserve glycine unless you're doing an amino acids test in the blood. So if you are doing an amino acids test in the blood, you want to keep glycine in the middle of the range and you wanna keep sarcosine as low as possible. But if you're not doing an amino acids test and you know, to do that, uh, keeping sarcosine as low as possible is is try to boost your methylfolate supply either by um, sparing it with choline, conserving it with creatine or increasing the methylfolate supplementation in the diet and trying to boost glycine up into the middle of the range, supplement with glycine or collagen or gelatin. And, um, you know, so if you are testing amino acids, then I would titrate up those things to suppress sarcosine to raise glycine in the middle of the range. If you're not testing those things, then you just have to kind of guess and so the icing on the cake can be like get more collagen into your diet to try to boost the glycine levels.
1: Well, I might just need clarification on that. So the, I think people's heads are spinning like a one carbon metabolism cycle at the moment going around and around. Um, so yeah, we use methyl transfer as, um, so glycine gets methylated to, to sarcozine. Um, I, uh, understood it as like a, a sort of a, a methyl buffer to prevent quote-unquote over-methylating which is probably a misnomer is that correct that we because sarcosine doesn't really have a, a known biological function does it It seems to be some inert product but it yeah my um i used
0: sorry go ahead no no
1: yeah my former understanding was like if you've got excessive, excessive methylation if that's possible you you shunt it down to um, the sarcosine pathway by um, methylating glycine to sort of yep. keep the, the homeostasis of methylation going, if that's, you know, correct. correct,
0: Yep, that is yep. correct. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, buff, it's not a chemical buffer. Uh, no, no, so um, yeah. I don't want to mislead anyone with sure. that terminology. But you could see it as a, and this isn't really a biochemical term, but it's sort of a biochemical buffer. Um, it, you know, prevents... So what happens is, um, I, I don't know if sarcosine has a biological role there. I think that's controversial. And there are some s- studies suggesting benefits in schizophrenia and stuff like that. Oh, but, okay. um, but it's, it's kind of hard to say because sarcosine can, can, uh, can release glycine. So, um, so the way it works is most of the methylation is happening in the cytosol. And so the glycine buffering is happening in the cytosol. That sarcosine can then go to the mitochondria and it, and the methylation can be reversed. And so uh, the carbons from the methyl groups could could be a source of uh, formate to make formal folate, which can be act as a precursor to methylfolate. And the, the sarcosine can release glycine in the mitochondria. So in theory, if the... Uh, but the th- the thing is, unmethylated tetrahydrofolate is the limiting factor in the mitochondria for to be able to reuse the sarcosine. So basically, if the met- if the incoming methyl groups exceed, um, or if the sarcosine fr- produced from methylating glycine because of the excess of meth of SAMe coming in, if that sarcosine exceeds. The amount of unmethylated tetrahydrofolate to regenerate glycine and the methyl groups inside the mitochondria, then you will lose the sarcosine in the urine. Right. Um, that's that's, you know, this is supported by the fact that there's sarcosine found in plasma and in urine. Okay, so <laughs> so so it's it's sort of like the ideal situation is the excess of CME isn't that big. So the amount of sarcosine produced from glycine isn't that big. So it goes to the mitochondria and it all regenerates glycine and methyl groups to be used later, which is all hunky-dory. <laughs> but the, pra- the practical thing is um, if you overmethylate glycine, you're going to hit some threshold where you're losing most of the sarcosine or dimethylglycine, which is what happens when you methylate glycine twice in the urine. So if you're losing in the urine, you're losing, you're permanently losing methyl groups and glycine
1: okay wow it's uh it's all obviously linked and complicated but um i think there's been some great gems there i think we'll uh wrap it up there because um it's getting late for you and people's heads are probably spinning but that was um <laughs> i think um in reflection i think you're at par with jeff bland to just record facts and data and figures just off the top of your head it's mind-blowing um well done so um yeah, yeah, there's many, many things I'd love to chat about, but uh, yeah, we'll wrap it up. It's um, been great to tour around colon and, and um, methylation with you. Um, so as people are probably aware, uh, have gathered that you're full of facts and, and data. So tell us about um, some of the research, resources you've got on your, your website.
0: Yeah, so for people who really, really want to tone it down a notch, uh, <laughs> you can sign up for my my free Vitamins and Minerals 101 class. Um, this is a 30 day class, one lesson on each nutrient delivered to your email or to your as a series of Facebook messages. Um, there's also a premium version of the class where everything is neat, nice and neatly organized and clickable and searchable and stuff like that Um, but the the basic class coming by email or facebook message is completely free Um, i'm also turning it into a book Um, but again if you just want uh, if if you just basically what this class does is in a pretty fun way with pretty like close to zero technical jargon um teaches you about the um you know Starting with vitamin A, what is it? What does it do? What is it good for? How do I know if I don't have enough? How do I know if I have too much? What might that look like in terms of what I would experience? Where do I get it from food? How much of those foods do I need to eat? And are there times where I should think about supplementing? And are there any cautions I should think about when I supplement? And what form should I supplement with when I supplement? Starts with vitamin A, then it goes on to the B vitamins, one, two, three, um, up to B12, And then it goes on to the other vitamins in alphabetical order. And then it goes into all the minerals uh, in alphabetical order. And um, there's, uh, I think there's about 10,000 people in the class right now. Um, If you want to, if you, uh, if you look at the Facebook post for this, it has 16,000 comments on it. Most of which are just like, wow, this class is amazing. I'm learning so much. General feedback is it's, Uh, Completely understandable to someone with no technical background in nutrition uh, because of the lack of technical jargon, but even people who are nutrition-related professionals are really enjoying it because they either find uh, each lesson a great refresher on what they already knew and or because in each of these lessons, they're spending 10 minutes in a day and if there's one or two things in that lesson that they didn't know before, it's really high payoff for them to learn something game-changing about that, that they wouldn't have known if they didn't spend that 10 minutes reading the lesson in the day. So um, that's what I have for people who basically want either to go from beginner to intermediate level in understanding nutrition um, or who are professionals and want refreshers and little gems. And then for people who just want a re- uh, a reference guide or resource to work clinically. I know you said most of your audience is practitioners. I think practitioners would love testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet. Yeah. You mentioned before it's not actually a cheat sheet. Well, <laughs> it's, it's called a cheat sheet because it's designed so that if you wanted to do, for example, a comprehensive nutritional analysis, all you need to look at is one page that has everything right on it And if you want to interpret it, all you have to do is use the next five pages. So it's made to be as simple and as little work as possible. And the other 70 pages of it, 70 plus pages of it are, you know, you read them on an as needed basis, identify what the problem is, develop an action plan, do something about it and monitor the efficacy of that action plan. So I think for people who are clinical and want to use something in practice, getting a copy of this and suggesting that, you know, some of your um more uh self-starter patients also get a copy of it so you can be on the same page when understanding it's a great idea uh, lab results is a great idea
1: yeah it's a it's an amazing research I was, <laughs> every resource i was just being flipping but it's 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 yeah very comprehensive it, it is easy to use it's just it's got all the information to support it so uh and you've got a podcast you do sort of more little shorter sandbites
0: yeah, so if you go to chrismasterjohnphd.com, you can find all my content. I have uh, my podcasts and my written posts and everything wind up there. Um, and there, the menu buttons allow you to find Chris Master John Light, which is short little tidbits, and Mastering Nutrition, which is one to two to two plus hour uh, podcasts that are either Q and A sessions or are uh, very in depth into a single topic. Um, for example, some of the episodes are like two part episodes on Niacin part one is almost two hours. Part two is almost two hours. (laughs) Um, And, and uh, yeah, so, so there's something for everyone, whether you want little tidbits or you want to really, really geek out.
1: Yeah. Just a interest question of interest. What are you, what are you looking at at the moment? What's, um, you know, got you piqued your interest or where you're diving into at the moment?
0: what's what's peaking my interest at the moment yeah
1: yeah what are you diving into at the moment oh
0: i'm fully focused on finishing the vitamins and minerals ah, 101 yeah. course yeah. turning it into a book so at the moment what's on my mind tomorrow is zinc because i'm writing the zinc is the last in the lessons <laughs> yes and uh, <laughs> so i'm writing that lesson up so it's 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 like 98% complete for the course i hope to wrap it up this week uh, you know, by the time anyone listens to this, it will be complete okay um, and then, and then it's turning vitamins and minerals 101 into a book then uh, i have then I have a top secret technical educational project I want to work on that I'm not ready to talk about that I'll yeah. be thinking about next year and then i and then I am going to go back to completing my deep dives into the nutrients. so B6 is next on that list to do a four hour podcast on <laughs> <laughs> that'll that'll probably be in January.
1: Fantastic! Watch out, paradoxine. Four hours—that's um, that's incredible. Yeah, we look forward to hearing from it, and we'll put it on our like our, our social media posts. Any updates on what you're releasing? But yeah, I really encourage practitioners to sign up, um, get the, the cheat sheet, follow Chris's as you heard today—very um, in depth, but also you know clinically um, actionable as well. So, Chris, uh, I really appreciate your time and generosity. It's been fantastic to, to wander through colon and methylation with you.
0: Thank you so much, Nathan. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes
1: and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.